Hey everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. What's up? What's up, guys? Happy 2024 to everybody. Happy Browns in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Happy. Hey, I have some more stuff to say about silence. Is there a? Is that a holiday? <laughs> sure. Go ahead. I'm ready. Uh, I just felt like I didn't do a good job explaining myself when we were talking about it. And mm-hmm. I finished the book. And you know the thing that really stuck out to me in the book that was not in the movie is when Rodriguez was going through his turmoil in his um, in his prison. Is this was after Garp died? Mm-hmm. And I and I know you didn't like that scene in the movie because it looked really pathetic and it like it didn't make any sense. That was kind of like how it was portrayed being... in the book. Yeah. It didn't seem like they were really killing the people, like, effic- like it, like it didn't seem like that would really kill a person to just kind of like hold them down with a stick, slightly. Uh, okay, we'll see. At that time, Garp was. Uh, by the way, it's spelled G A R R P E in the book, which is different than in the movie. Yeah, they say Garupe in the movie. Yeah, so I I've been reading the book and I finish it, <clears throat> and it just says Garp. Hmm. Um, the point is. What's my point going to be? Oh yeah, he so the, like, the character Rodriguez went through, by that point. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The character Rodriguez after that point, after Garp died, he was going through a lot of doubt of his faith. Although he didn't know it was doubt, like he wasn't smart enough to pick up on the fact that it was doubt. Like he was saying things to himself, like, "Oh man, wouldn't it be crazy if Christianity wasn't real? Then Garp just died for nothing." Mm-hmm. That that pathetic scene of my sickly friend drowning, trying to save these people, he just died for absolutely nothing. And I think it was because of that, that spurred on his martyrdom. So in the book, you see that the martyrdom is really a, a compensation for the doubt that he feels. Which just mm. indicates that it's, you know, more a disconnection from reality. I mean, not that we didn't already know that, but. Right, it kind of reinforces the theme that we were talking about last time, which is like this concept of his martyrdom. Like that's not necessarily a good thing. Like that in itself is this form of being kind of like led astray uh, in a sense. And it's complicated. It isn't all one way or the other. But it's like one thing that I was not expecting about this movie. Um, and it, it sounds like you're kind of talking about this is that it's, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a specific alignment to a particular like flavor or attitude about Christianity itself, um, or like it's not like pro religion or anti religion per se. Like in my opinion, it's more like depicting that what a religion is is a framework for living one's life by, just like pragmatism can be, uh, and and there can be like a pragmatic inflection of a religious lifestyle and and a really idealistic inflection of it and so on and so forth. And all of these things are much more fungible to use a word from 2022, um, or 2023. Is that, and, uh, is that it's like a uh, word from last year? Well, I'm just thinking of NFTs, but, uh, oh, okay. It's right. like, um, I forgot about those. I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is that like when you, when you posit that, that, like explanation where you say like, Oh, you know, he's, he's experiencing this, this, this emotion uh, of doubt because if Grupe died uh, and Christianity is not true, then he died for nothing. It's like, 
I don't want to be too like dense about it or anything, but like to me, like I don't even understand what that means. Like what did what would what does it mean that he died for nothing? I mean, he died as a protest and as a demonstration and as a as a, a attempt, futile though it may have been, uh, to to fight against this injustice that was being perpetrated. These people being you know murdered for no reason. Um, so like, to me, it, like it is for something regardless of whether, of, of the truth value uh, of the claims of Christianity, but well, I guess well, to, not, uh, not if you're coming from the, the mindset of Rodriguez at the time, right, right. To a literal proselytizer then yeah. you can't really look at it that way. Yeah. I think the book, yeah, I don't think it was, the book was anti-Christianity or anti-anything. I was, I think it was just saying, look, you have these, uh, these symbols in Christianity and, and when they get stale, you know, that's a sign that they're going to die off and you're going to die off with them too. And when you meet new people, maybe it's time to incorporate new things that you've learned. I I think that's really what the point was. Mm. And yeah, I don't know. I I kind of feel sad by the end of the, I mean, it was in the book too. And by the end of the movie that I don't, I don't think Rodriguez really got that. Maybe he did. Maybe that's up to interpretation. Yeah, I mean, he lived his life, right? He didn't, like, die for the cause. He decided to assimilate to the extent that he did, uh, although there was, like, you know... He, yeah, he I just got the sense it was forever. a fight, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I don't know what to really say about the viewpoint that is being, like, prescribed in this story. It's a good story. It's complex, and I guess that's good. But wh- what do you think the author is really trying to say? Like... Some amount of assimilation is good, but not too much, <laughs> you know, like, like it, it's only natural that something that is a dogma, uh, cannot last forever in all contexts. And it needs to like change and mold to the different situations that you're trying to apply it, like bringing Christianity to, to Japan. And, and when it doesn't work, the only tool you have left is martyrdom, which only works if other people play into it hmm. and the Japanese weren't playing into it. It's like your mother-in-law comes over and she, she's like doing a, a martyrdom thing. Well, it doesn't matter. You you need to be the one who plays into it. If you just laugh at it, it loses all power. If you just play a practical joke on your mother-in-law, it her martyrdom loses all power, right? And it's the same thing. That's what the Japanese were doing to Rodriguez. They're like, oh, this mm-hmm. is going to be your technique. We're, we're going to play a trick on you. We're going to kill other people until you step on Jesus's face. How about that? Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, if you're not a Christian, that's really funny. I mean, when you think about it, that's actually hilarious that they would do that. It's like what some frat guys would do <laughs> if they came across like this this martyr for Christianity they've never seen before. That's what they would do, right? And yeah, so it's I, like I if just you find think out it's like this stark, you know, you, you're that this stark uh, emotional indulgence that you're doing, it's, it's not going to work if, if other people don't play along. And Right. Like if the jocks find out that the nerds actually value themselves based on the number of wedgies that they receive, then it's like the jocks only recourse is to like start wedging other people instead of the nerds. Right. <laughs> yes. Thank you for landing that uh, metaphor for me. Exactly. Yeah. Silence yeah. is a, a movie that, like I was saying last time, it definitely grew for me on second watching, um, and it definitely still has its clumsy parts. Um, 
the the stuff the, the it's funny that the the thing that you mentioned being like more like painted better in the book is specifically the process of of Rodriguez's sort of ordeal after his imprisonment because yeah to me that's exactly where I started feeling like things stumbled here and there uh, in the movie and it's hard to de- to depict a internal transformation of a person yeah you know filmically yeah so it makes sense um but yeah it's it's a good movie it, it's it's you know, I was thinking about how scene you didn't like before. Uh, so I don't think it, the snore was portrayed very well in the movie because in the book, what the snore was supposed to represent is the the guys in the pit gasping for air, mm-hmm. and so the snore was supposed to sound like a gasp. Mm-hmm. So less like a snore and more like sleep apnea, I think. Yeah, and it was supposed to be this frustrating, like this guy can't quite breathe, and like oh, he can't stop snoring. It's like no, it's not the guards snoring. Those are people in the pit gasping for air because mm-hmm. they can't breathe because they're upside down. I guess after you're upside down for a while. So, does that change the snoring scene for you at all? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's um, like I said, I just think, yeah, I, I, like I said, when we talked about it before, I just think it's one of those things where like once you're in a position in making a movie where you have to try to depict the worst suffering you possibly can, that becomes really hard to do and like actually pull it off and still wind up with a, you know, enjoyable movie. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be like a fun, but like, you know, still has to have some sort of like quality and yeah. uh, artistic value to yeah, it. This and, movie is a guy who gets his penis cut in half lengthwise. <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> it's hard to do that. With a dull, rusty knife. Yeah. Right really hard to make. train human suffering well. I, 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 I'll tell you one. That's one thing that you have to really give to Lars von Trier. I mean, he he's a person who's, you know, navigated those waters very well. Uh, in lots of different ways in his movies and uh, yeah something that he's good at and maybe Scorsese isn't quite as good at that specific part of it but it doesn't take away from the overall uh, quality of the movie for sure well I mean even Lars von Scheer had to resort to to something like cutting a penis in half lengthwise not that bad Mm -hmm. but I don't know is it that bad well I just think that whatever the thing that he depicts is um, he's able to, he, he was able to make like in movies like Antichrist, Melancholia, Dancer in the Dark. Those are the three that I'm really most familiar with. He's able to use movie making to portray like the depths of suffering in a way that I think silence didn't quite get to in the way that maybe it needed to, to have its maximum effect at the very end there. It doesn't mean that like the intellectual content of it is lost, but I just think that like maybe some of the execution was not perfect. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, it's hard to hold a standard of perfection uh, for movie making, although we're going to get pretty freaking close to it uh, today when we talk about Barry Lyndon. Uh, because if there's one person who can do that, uh, who can figure out exactly the right way to do anything in a movie. To execute uh, a... a- yeah, I mean, that was going to be my point about Barry Lyndon is the whole time I, I, I thought myself or I, I found myself thinking this movie should we be way more boring than it is. But somehow right. I'm, I'm mostly captivated by it. I mean, most. Right. Yeah. And and so then I'm thinking, what, what's going on here? Is it like the way the camera pans across the room? Is it cinematography? Is cinematography a real thing? 
I don't get what's going on exactly, but I know it's pleasant and I don't mind. And I know I don't mind watching it, even though I don't really care about what's going on. Like by the end of the movie, I mean, no, I guess I did care what happened to, to Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Yeah. But that, like, that was my takeaway that like, there's like technical, maybe technical filmmaking stuff that I just don't understand that's going on that, that makes it pleasant. Yeah. And it is and, a very I, pleasant movie. I, I, I would describe it that way. Yeah, and it's it's not all technical either. Like it doesn't just exist for the sake of being something that you study uh, as like a technician in cinematography class or something. Like it, it is really everything. And oh, yeah, uh, I was I'm watching. Saying of, that must be part of it, though. Yeah, it is. I, I was watching the uh, making of uh, featurette that was included in the Criterion. I don't know if you have a. There might be a way for you to see that if you Google it up or look on YouTube or something. Um, and th- they have actual audio interview, uh, interview audio with Kubrick at the time. I think it was probably recorded in the late seventies. This movie came out in seventy five, and uh, he's speaking pretty normally, you know, for a guy who's notorious for being so like reclusive and crazy and whatever. I mean, it, when you do hear him talk in like the rare interview footage that exists, he's a totally normal, likable, personable person with a regular viewpoint uh, on things. He's way less weird than David Lynch who himself is really not that weird, all things considered. Um, but Kubrick was just, he didn't like to travel. Uh, he was afraid of traveling. And he had a close-knit circle of like people who he trusted to work with professionally. So he, he gets this reputation. But really, he's just like a mega insanely smart guy who doesn't like to travel and is doing his own thing and keeping to himself. It's, it's, it's not really a reflection of him being like a weirdo per se. I mean, it is, but not like an antisocial weirdo. Anyway, the point in his point is he's being very normal and not, uh, pretentious in this interview. And he's just talking about how I really like period movies. Um, because like making a period movie is yeah, like, we had to watch really... a period movie in fifth grade. Remember? Hello. Thank you. That was, that was gross. Yeah, it was it was bloody brilliant. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, he said that, you know, making a period movie plays to cinema's ultimate strength over all other art forms, which is that it has the ability to actually transport your entire perception into like a different time and place, you know, because it's kind of engaging all of your senses, I suppose. And uh, and so, you know, what he and, and he also talks just very plainly about just like basic stuff. Like he says, I really like how in the novel Barry Lyndon, by the way, Barry Lyndon is based on a novel by William Makepeace Thackeray, who was at the time in like the late 1800s considered to be the second best writer aside from Dickens uh, in, in English. Uh, William Makepeace Thackeray. Yeah. Yeah. Who I've like, never read. Like Constance Goodwife. Yeah, yeah, Makepeace is a pretty badass middle name. But um, yeah, he was um, most known for Vanity Fair, which I've never read, but is supposed to be like one of the great, you know, works in English ever. Uh, and Barry Lyndon came out a couple years before then. It was his kind of major work before that one. And it was released in serialized form in, you know, reading magazines back then in the in the late 1800s. And anyway, um but but he uh, Kubrick says that one of the things that he likes about it so much is that uh, basically that it's easy, like that the story is easy. It has a narrator who purposefully sets up the dramatic stuff that's about to happen ahead of time. So then you're just engaged in watching it unfold. Like, you know, Brian's going to die before you see him die. 
uh, and it kind of works in a sense. You know that Barry is in trouble when he starts lying to the Prussians before you actually see him get busted. Uh, and all these things sort of play out in a way that is very, in my opinion, kind of playful. Um, and also th- that just like Kubrick literally just says, he's like, yeah, you know, I like narration because it relieves me of the burden of having to do a lot of expository scenes. Like that's not really what he's trying to do the most. He's trying to let the art breathe. And it's not just photography, although he was, you know, first and foremost, a photographer. He was an actual like film photographer before he was a a director. Um, But also like, you know, acting, he's renowned for having this really um, purposeful and effective method with actors where he would like over rehearse everything so that by the time you were actually shooting them, um, they were no longer, they had already completely internalized all of the lines and all the interactions. There was no more performance. It was just being uh, in the moment that he set up. Uh, and you know, meticulous research, like, uh, one thing that I learned from the making of is that, uh, there were no costumes that were designed for Barry Lyndon. Every single costume that appears in the movie is, uh, copied from either a painting or a museum, uh, or is an actual original historical piece from the era. Um, which is just kind of like a remarkable, you know, attention to detail, obviously like all the locations. Sounds like something Robert Eggers would do. It's it's just it's just. By the yeah, way, the Nosferatu movie is coming out. Did you see a still from that? Yeah, yeah. Willem Dafoe is uh, Van Van Helsing. <laughs> yeah, Dafoe is the man. One of the best actors for sure. I think it'll be fun if nothing else. Well, the thing about Eggers, which I think is, um, you know, he's he's obviously Kubrickian. You know, everybody is. Um, that's how influential Kubrick was. But like the thing about Eggers is that I believe that Eggers really loves doing. Uh, expository filmmaking, like letting the scenes tell a story, you know, as tellingly as they can. Uh, it's kind of like the, it's, you could consider it to be like on the other end of the spectrum uh, compared to what Kubrick is doing in Barry Lyndon, where it's just like, well, first of all, this, you know, British gentleman will just voice over what's going to happen. And then let's just enjoy watching the splendor, you know, of this, of this footage that we have here uh, and this acting and this music. Um, where, where Eggers is, you know, would never, I don't think would ever really do something like that. He would be letting the scenes drive everything, um, like in their imagery and stuff. I don't know. Like something about that seems like a different. So are we just looking at pretty pictures when we watch Barry Lyndon? Is that what's going on? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the acting is fantastic. I think the casting is like these, the faces of these people are just like, so, memorable and i think the acting is amazing i mean i think ryan o'neill r.i.p is so good uh in this movie it's just a great performance but it's hard not to have a great performance when the character is so interesting too and um i don't know it's just kind of like to me like you said it should be way more boring than it is this is ultimately just a uh buildings roman uh or it's uh, like pride and prejudice i mean which yeah, is the most yeah. boring thing ever right yeah. That's what this seems it's, like. It's a, um, what's the other word for this? Uh, picaresque, picaresque, um, of, of just a guy who was just a guy who lived in this time period, you know, the late 18th century and, uh, tried to, you know, climb his way through the social hierarchy of, of Europe. That's like, that's it. That's the story. There's not much to it. It should be, uh, just that, but there's something, I don't know, just, very captivating and entertaining about the whole thing and it's it's equal parts 
you know, pretty pictures, interesting details, right? Acting, music, um, humor, you know, I don't know, just everything. Yeah, you know, I think I've come along on voiceover. I'm okay with it now. For that exact reason that it's just a lot easier. And it's like, yeah, I, I get the filmmakers being lazy, but I'm lazy too. So if you could just <laughs> have some English guy tell me what's going on so I don't have to think about it, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, to me, um, I can't really think of another example, at least not off the top of my head, where narration is being used the way that it is in Barry Lyndon. But I really like the way that it's being used in Barry Lyndon. And by the way, I was reading that in the book, uh, the narrator is Barry himself. And it's not clear. I mean, it's obviously not the same actor doing the voiceover. It's not Ryan O'Neill doing the voiceover. So that's not really the same in the movie. And I think that probably is a very interesting difference between the two. I'm sure that if you read the book, like Wikipedia mentions that like it's a classic example of the unreliable narrator uh, in the book form. So I'm sure that if you read the book, there would be a little bit more mischievousness going on there in the narration where maybe he's like, you know, fibbing or painting things differently than they actually happened. But in the movie, it's very, it's very much sort of like a children's storybook. Like just, you know, here's what happened with Barry. When you mean using voiceover in that way, what exactly do you, do you mean by, okay, so you, you give all the expository information with the voiceover. So you let the scene breathe. Could you say that in a way I would understand it? <laughs> well, what's an example of a movie other than Barry Lyndon, which has voiceovers that are walking you through the plot in a this casino. way? I mean, Casino comes to mind. There's yeah, a lot okay. of voiceover in that movie. Yeah, that's a good example. That's a good one. I was thinking of more of like the Big Lebowski, where it's like, yes, it has narration, but it's like the purpose of that narration is not like setting up what's going to happen. It's more like giving a perspective or like giving a mood to the thing like the cowboy you know sam elliott who narrates big lebowski like he has his own opinion and perspective about like the time and place of the story and the character of the dude but he's not really like walking you through the events um and i think that narration is usually like more like that although honestly when you like really a Hugo me, kind of narration yeah, exactly. Like where it's just like the narrator is just this other character that's in the world. Um, but uh, I don't know. It, it's maybe it's like 50 50. I wish I could think of more examples of movie narration off the top of my head. Casino, you're right, is an example that's kind of like this. Yeah, because it would be the different characters narrating, right? Yeah, that's like definitely how it is. Uh, Ray Elliott, Ray Liotta would mm -hmm. what would and the other times Joel Pesci would narrate right right yeah exactly I'm sure there are other narrators who I forget yeah De Niro is the main one but yeah you definitely hear from all of them oh am I thinking of Goodfellas no you're no you're right I mean yeah he, Ray Liotta is in Goodfellas but Casino is same movie they, yeah they're <laughs> very much so very much of a piece <laughs> Definitely. It's, it's kind of like uh, uh, Elvis movies, right? They're all kind of the same. Yeah. Scorsese movies from that era, all kind of the same. Yeah, well, that's the thing about silence is, uh, yeah, it's definitely not. Yeah. Um, okay, so what else did I have about Barry Lyndon? 
I mean, we can go through the plot if you want to. I mean, the other thing to say about Barry Lyndon, in my opinion, which we could talk about, is that... No, that's okay. I don't think there's anything interesting about the plot, is there? I mean, it's like a... I don't know. It's like a a story of a guy's rise and fall. And yeah, Mm -hmm. the things that made him rise to the top, the the kind of risks he took, that was that kind of temperament that that led to his downfall. I mean, I think... It's like, okay, yeah, this is like a, a story. Yeah, I mean, Thackeray was was known for being a social satirist. So I think you have to really digest that the point of the film, to some extent, is that there's a specific code of morality and of, like, social conduct that is being portrayed in this movie, right? This concept of being an aristocratic gentleman, uh, and of, you know, like sort of class striving or whatever you would call that, like how to get to your proper station in life and the opportunities that society affords or denies different people. And Barry just trying to make the best outcome for himself that he can, given this code uh, to work with. You know, even the highwaymen uh, are the most polite person that you'll talk to that day as they steal all of your money, uh, like we see in one scene. Um, so like, there's something about that that I think is kind of worth analyzing. Like, what is that? What's the deal with the way that people acted <laughs> in, in the late 18th century Europe? Like what, why were they like that? What was the deal? Um, and also just like thinking about that, obviously, like as a parable, right? When Thackeray wrote this, he wanted to, he, he wanted us to presumably take this story of a, of a liar, a con man. It's kind of a catch me if you can, you know, style story to a large extent, at least the first half of it is. Um, and he, Thackeray would have wanted you to apply that to his modern time and place, which would have been like Dickensian, uh, you know, proto-industrial or whatever, maybe early industrial modern society. And then, you know, for us, obviously, <laughs> the, the surface level interpretation of Barry Lyndon for us is is to think about Barry Lyndon being basically, uh, you know, um, Donald Trump or, or John Fetterman, you know, depending on what your, <laughs> what your uh, starting point is. But you know what I mean? There's something allegorical about the fact that, you know, this guy really, he is a fraud, right? Like Barry Lyndon is a fraud, but that's not bad. <laughs> and we have to kind of digest that. Like we like him and he's good, even though he's bad. Really? I mean, I don't like him that much. He's not, he's not a likable guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, uh, he beats his stepson ludicrously. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yep. He... But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's not just being his stepson that made him fall from society. It's the show that he put on. Like, he lost composure. Like, it's mm-hmm. okay if you beat your stepson, but if you lose composure while you do an act like a maniac, that's... I think that's maybe what you're talking about, right? Right. Yeah, and it no, seems that's like true. That's why, that, that's why he fell, and that's why people shun, shun him, because, uh, yeah, he acted like a maniac. Yeah, I mean, if we really track his... You know, if we really do a moral evaluation of his actions sort of chronologically through the plot, I think we see like ebbs and flows of, you know, there being a genuine person there, maybe, you know, overly uh, vulnerable to his own like whims and passions and stuff, but, you know, a a genuine person. Um, But then, you know, at other turns, just a total, you know, unlikable, you know, faker or a reprobate. So it's like, 
you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's, he's, he's a horny young man who wants to bang his cousin and is willing to go to the lengths of like, you know, ruining, uh, her family fortune, uh, and potentially killing a guy for all he knows, killing a guy in a duel, uh, just to try to like, you know, get some from his cousin. And then like, that doesn't work out. Thankfully, the grownups in the room who know better than he does, uh, set it up so that, you know, he doesn't really have to kill the guy. They just kind of get him out of town, which to me, that was kind of like the first like moment of humor in the movie is when you find out like, Oh, by the way, like you didn't actually shoot that guy. That's why they swapped guns on you in the first place. I I think there's humor, uh, as the undercurrent of everything. Yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like in the first scene when he's playing cards with his cousin and then puts his face in her boobs, that that whole scene is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I'm not laughing out loud, of course, but there's levity. It's fun. But right. It's, on the surface, it's a boring scene. So I don't know. Something's going on. Maybe it's the acting. Maybe uh, Stanley Kubrick's working his juju. Who knows? Yeah, and it, it's also just the satirical nature of us. Like It's the antiquated nature of like that being that era's version of horniness, right? It's like to us, like this yeah, oh, is the way I, these people I seem to have left a, a, a <laughs> right. handkerchief in my POTUS. Right. Mm, who's going to find it? Right. So it's like, yeah. you know, and they tell him at the time, right? He's about to go duel this English captain. Uh, that's the, the fake shooting that I'm referring to. And his buddies, his seconds are telling him like, look, your cousin's kind of, you know, she's going to find some other dude. It's not really a big deal, and you're going to just find some other girl also. I can guarantee it. So maybe no one needs to shoot anybody today. <laughs> we could just forget this whole thing. And he won't do it, right? It's like this young man's uh, honor and uh, and determination uh, that is completely foolish. Like, it's there's, there's no reason to admire it. It's like the blind faith that we see in the early parts, like the pre-turn, you know, turn, uh, parts of silence where it's just like, yeah, these people are adhering to their code and we can respect something about the consistency and dedication of that. Mm-hmm. But it honest, obviously doesn't make sense from any sort of like heuristic or yeah. pragmatic view of, of how to live. Uh, and that's what we see Barry doing. But then, you know, we also see him genuinely do good, right? He like, you know, actually does uh, save the life of, of uh, the captain. You know, maybe it's for his own benefit ultimately in the end, but I mean, he saved the guy's life, put himself in harm's way. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a very, to me, kind of fascinating and uh, memorable, like one of the best scenes in the movie is the one a little bit later on where they, the Prussians try to get Barry to act as a spy for this gambler who's been hanging out around the court. And when Barry sees the guy who to us looks like the biggest weirdo, like straight out of a Terry Gilliam movie, like with a powdered wig and, you know, just like, it looks like a Simpsons caricature, like of a weird Victorian guy. Um, But to Barry, he looks like the most like splendid and noble, like regal figure that he's ever seen. And he's a fellow Irishman too. Uh, And Barry breaks down and cries in front of him and just says like, you know, I have to apologize. I throw myself at your mercy. Like I was sent here to deceive you, but now that I'm standing in your presence, I just can't, uh, and just kind of prostrates himself. Um, again, I think there's something likable and noble about whatever's going on emotionally with him there. Um, and then of course, you know, he acts terribly later on, 
Um, so it kind of goes back and forth. Uh, to me, again, it's like, I, I think the movie is asking you to think about this value system that Barry is living inside of and this character of this man himself, Barry, and how that might apply to the people that we hold up as figureheads in our society with its weird, different code. Yeah, I'm trying to process that. I mean, look, you, you know, you look out at society and th there are certain rules and customs that you need to fall in line with if you want to get ahead. Um, hmm. I know where I'm going with that. I mean, at a so very fundamental level. willing to do that to some degree. Yeah, like at a but very fundamental a level. On, on a, somebody who, who he found a, seemed to be his home countryman, then, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like, I don't know, to me it's like the, the movie is asking you or the story is asking you to think about what does this society, this, this, you know, time and place of human civilization actually value and reward? And like, what is this system set up to perpetuate? And, you know, it's, it's like aristocracy. Um, and it's like this, uh, concept of chivalry, which is like, you know, in a hundred years down the road is going to be completely, you know, kneecapped by World War One. Like, we're not going to think that any of this stuff is brave or, or heroic anymore, but we're still living in that world, you know, in the time and place of Barry Lyndon and, uh, and honor and gentlemanliness. Um, and like you said, like, it's fine to cheat on your wife. It's fine to be a worthless drunk. It's fine for there to be, you know, people who uh, have means beyond the imagining of a normal, you know, laborer. Uh, who can, you know, gamble away, you know, 500 lifetimes worth uh, of, of earnings, you know, in one uh, hand of poker or whatever weird, you know, uh, gambling they're doing in this movie. It's like all those things are fine and acceptable in society. It's not like it's a real morality, but it's something. It's a code that has these kind of rules and regulations and guide rails. And what does that system produce? Um and encourage and and give rise to well it gives rise to people like this guy barry linden who like you know yeah maybe there's a couple things about him that are likable sort of in a roguish way but really he's just kind of like this you know like adds nothing of value <laughs> to society uh, other than maybe making a good story uh, after he dies uh, i don't know i hope that doesn't sound too he's cynical i just producer is he yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't mean it to sound like it's this big like criticism of modern society or it's nothing that grandiose, but I do think that it does kind of just demonstrate that like there's a lot of focus in the movie about like who is and is not a gentleman, right? And who did or did not act honorably or like what the mandates of manners will allow and not allow. It's just like that's emphasized so much in the movie that I think it really just it's intentional to make you think about like, you know, this was the way that the world was set up and these were the kind of people who, as a result, wound up operating and succeeding uh, inside of that world. Yeah. Well, now the we're best thing that you society, can do. So whoever can work from home the longest while being hunched over their computer the most is going to get ahead. Right. Right. And back it's, it's then. Just different selection pressures. Exactly. Back then, the selection pressure was, you know, A, be born into the right family, you know, or marry into the right family. Um, Make it past and, three. And yeah, survive. Exactly. Don't get an infection. And, uh, you know, if all else fails, you know, gamble uh, or steal. And um, 
you know, I'm obviously or, or part get of into the, the army and save somebody who's important. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I or, mean, yeah, you know, in the American the Revolution, line. I know I've talked about this a bunch of times, but those guys, especially Alexander Hamilton, were hoping for a war mm-hmm. because they were lowborn, and that was their way to, to rise in status. Is his to have people see them marching into a, a barrage of of bullets mm-hmm. and being brave and. You know, George Washington coming back with bullet holes in his hat like that. That's what you did. Mm-hmm. And th- and on that note, I think that's another good thing I like about the script. Uh, I'm assuming this is in the book as well, is that they make a specific point not to explain any of the geopolitical like causes of the Seven Years War. Um, because it doesn't matter, obviously, to anybody who's in the orbit of Barry Lyndon. Like, it's just something that happened, right? It's just something yeah, that wound up war, occurring, right? yeah, in, in well, your it lifetime. It seems a lot, a lot like World War Zero. Mm-hmm. That's kind of entangling alliances. You got our back, they've got their back, and we're just going to fight because, right. yeah, there's too much of a healthy male population in society, but that before the Industrial Revolution can't survive with that, so we, we need to disperse with them. Right. We're still settling how all of these different, yeah, territories and resources and power relations uh, are going to wind up reaching any sort of point of stability. And we're definitely not there yet at the point of the Seven Years' War. And we weren't there at the point of World War One. I. I guess we weren't there at the point of World War Two, or maybe a lot of the world was like after World War Two. But, you know, I don't know. What, what is war really doing other than just trying to like anneal out those those relations into something that has some sort of long-term stability and who knows who knows if we're there yet or not i guess it depends on uh what happens with nukes i don't something. know what you're talking about where are we supposed to be <laughs> i don't know where we're supposed to be <laughs> i don't know i'm just saying that i guess the point of war back then was that these things were aligned in ways that were not sustainable you couldn't just keep having England and France and Prussia and whoever else was involved, the Swedes, like all continuing on on their current trajectories without inevitably reaching some sort of conflict over some sort of, I don't know what, border or limited resource or colony or whatever it was. And uh, so these wars like worked that stuff out. And I'm just saying that I'm not convinced that that's done being worked out yet. Maybe that just keeps getting worked out forever. Yeah, well, you know, there may be something in us that wants war, right? <laughs> that that whole explanation. Yeah. And if we're not building skyscrapers, we need to do something. So. Yeah. Let's start uh, beating each other up. Um, the I mean, one it's like Israel thing... Palestine, right? Like, hey, m- maybe what's going on is the solution to the conflict. Maybe, maybe the solution is more conflict. I don't know. Like, who are you to say? I, I definitely say. think that. Yeah, I definitely think that the reason why that happened is related to what I'm saying, right? There was, there's something going on there that was not sustainable in the long term, and inevitably some sort of conflict had to erupt to try to, yeah. yeah. I keep coming back to the word annealing. Anneal is this word that I learned a long time ago. It's like you like heat up metal, like you introduce more energy into metal so that the like uh, molecules or atoms or whatever, like settle into a more, like regular like pattern after you're done hmm. you know what i mean it's like you're like you're messing with it so that it winds up settling out more evenly as an outcome in the end even though you're introducing some like yeah. energy into it um so yeah anyway 
um, yeah, maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know anything about the Seven Years' War either, and I didn't look it up, so <laughs> I feel the same way Barry did. It's just it's just a way of hopefully attaining a station. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, great movie. Yeah. I wrote down. Um, oh yeah, the fact that there was a lens that was originally developed for the Apollo program. Um, that wound up being like a good fit for shooting in candlelight. Um, so Kubrick, oh, how like, does read Stanley Kubrick that. know people in the Apollo program? Ooh, interesting. Oh, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so um, that's cool. And the other note that I got from the making of documentary was that um, obviously they were shooting in various locations all around Europe. And one of the first places they went to to go shoot was Ireland. Um, Barry is from Ireland, and some of the early scenes in the movie take place there. Uh, while they were there in the mid-70s, um, the IRA threatened to kidnap uh, Stanley Kubrick. Um, so he left, and they never came back. They didn't do any more shooting in Ireland uh, after that. I thought that was a interesting little historical tidbit. Yeah, what's going on between Ireland and English? I don't know. I don't know the whole history of that thing. but Not something... too dissimilar from Israel-Palestine, I don't think. Yeah, it's definitely like explained in terms of Protestants and Catholics, but I think there's a lot more to it than that, as there always is. You know, it's like what was the cause of the Civil War? Yeah, it's deal. tribal. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just tribal. Yeah. But, um, okay. yeah, where does it sit in the canon of Stanley Kubrick movies you know I was thinking about that because we kind of did that with with silence it's like it's it's definitely like a hipster cool guy take to say that Barry Lyndon is actually his best film especially like when I was a budding film dork in high school and you know there wasn't like a criterion reissue or anything like that and Barry Lyndon would be like the one Kubrick movie that you know your average person hadn't really like seen or remembered uh, very much when compared to, you know, the big ones. Um, I get it. I understand that argument. Um, and I do think, like you said, yeah, I do wonder, yeah. Oh, to, I, I, it's no. amazingly entertaining. <laughs> it's way more entertaining and good than you would ever expect it to be, especially if you're the kind of person who would usually be allergic to this type of a movie, like on its surface, like a Mr. period Darcy. piece. It's like it's got weird accents and it's got boring, like, you know, chapter of history yeah, that I don't really know not, anything it's about. It's not even close to being as, as entertaining as The Shining, obviously. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? It's like all that being said, and for as perfect as it is, in a sense, I'm very hard pressed to say that it's better than 2001 or Eyes Wide Shut or Dr. Strangelove. Or I guess I would also say The Shining. I guess The Shining is better than this. The Shining is weirder than this, and its weirdness gives it a sort of strange attraction that Barry Lyndon can never have. And Barry Lyndon is like this perfect museum piece, and The Shining is like this experimental, unexplained concept thing that just is much more compelling because you can't get your whole brain around it in the same way. And uh, I'm really, as you know, I've said this before, I'm like such a Kool-Aid drinker on Room 237. And I really love that moment in Room 237 where the guy talks about how 
Stanley Kubrick was so brilliant that once he made Barry Lyndon, it really was like you it's, it would not be possible to accomplish anything higher than this than this movie in the realm of just filmmaking artistry and technique like just qua filmmaking uh it, it will never be surpassed and so for his next movie the shining kubrick had to go off and do something like insane and occult and symbolic that has all these different layers of otherness to it that aren't that are that go beyond just film and uh i think that's that's pretty true and eyes wide shut is like that also so yeah Which for what it's worth is to the moon landing maybe disclosure yeah maybe is that, like, that what that guy was saying i i, I don't know if that was the, the same movie. guy I can't remember if that was the same guy, but I, I do see how they could be related. I, I just think that whether it's related to the moon landing specifically or not, it's just something about the fact that, you know, there's one thing to be the best film director in the world. And if you're the best film director in the world, like you just do literally everything right, then you can make a movie like Barry Lyndon. I get it. But there's another thing to transcend your form and do something that is higher or spiritual or more ineffable than just making a perfect movie. And this guy, at least in room 237 is claiming that that's what Kubrick set out to do in making the shining. Um, you know, whether or not the shining succeeds in being that is, that's a different story, but I'm just saying that that's kind of what this guy's whole interpretation of it all is. Yeah, I get it. Well, I mean, that's I, how I feel I about want that interpretation to be true. So it is true. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. a good point that I want to be yeah. true. And you see that like it's it's like that's a thing that happens. It's not like it's unheard of. It's not like the shining is this like alien object from outer space. I just think it's you the, the guy in room 237 makes it does a good job of making it sound very like amazing and made an impact on me. But but you see this. You can think about paintings or books or whatever that do have this extra element of like aside from the fact that they were carried off with like expert uh craftsmanship they also just do something more than that. They have this transcendent uh, aspect. And Barry Lyndon doesn't have that. Other Kubrick movies do. And so that's why it's hard for me to say that it's really his best film. Although, yeah, it might be the best on some sort of uh, like objective how up, critical uh, rubric. Derek's own ass does he seem right now? <laughs> well, let us know what you think. Oh, the Brazenheads Podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. The other thing to me is like, it is ultimately just an adaptation of a book, and I think a pretty faithful one as well, uh, which is fine. Like, it, you can't really ding a movie for being an adaptation of a book. Like, that's that's fine. Um, uh, the Shining is an adaptation of a book, too. But I think the difference between uh, The Shining and Barry Lyndon in, in that category is that Kubrick very purposefully took The Shining and changed everything about it you know, when making the movie out of the book. Whereas I think with Barry Lyndon, he, he reproduced, um, like a subset of the book very faithfully. Um, so that counts for something too, to me. I don't know. It's just like, I respect a movie more that has more and more originality injected into it that didn't come from some sort of source material. That's just my preference. Well, yeah, I would say that's true. I mean, whenever you hear a movie's a, a take on the book, you go, oh, it, it automatically dings down a couple echelons. I mean, it's still maybe a really good movie, but yeah, 
Yeah, your favorite movie ever could still be based on a book. I I get it. I can see how that's possible. But for me personally, I will say that that's not true. I can't think of any example of that other than, I guess, maybe like The Godfather. Um, but again, The Godfather is sort of in the same realm as Barry Lyndon is, where it's like what you can say about The Godfather is that it's kind of a perfect creation of being a movie, but not that it transcends and has this thing that makes it like beyond moviness. Yeah. Beyond moviness. Taking notes over here. (laughs) Well, to you, what does that mean? (laughs) I mean, to you, apocalypto goes beyond being a great movie. It's that's it's something more. It's something that you know everybody needs to have some sort of uh, experience of or like cognizance of. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I maybe. I mean, there are some cool things that I think a lot of people need to see. But no, I I think Apocalypto. I mean, one of the reasons why I like it is it's just a good movie. Yeah. One of the things I always hated about Donnie Darko was I always felt like it was trying to be way more than it was. And trying to have all these like psychological scenes and it just felt lame. Yeah. Where Apocalypto, there's some psychological stuff in there, of course, but it's all done through very well designed and well thought out action. Mm hmm. It still means a lot, but, you know, it's just like a fun movie, too, where dudes die and people get tortured and then there's like mysticism and priests and kings and it's it's got everything man mm-hmm. yeah i get it and i think it means more that it's done against this backdrop of something that we don't really see that much like i mean how many freaking movies have i seen about like medieval knights or something or or something from late 18th century europe i've probably seen a bunch of movies like that but central america before the conquistadors got there that's that's cool. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. Do you remember do you remember the Herzog movie Agira the Wrath of God? The uh, one where I I I know I've heard of that. I've never seen it though. Okay. Yeah, that's the one where Klaus Kinski is like the the I don't know if he's Spanish or Portuguese or whatever, but he's yeah, he's like an explorer in South America. That's a good That would be a great brazen heads someday is uh is Agira, yeah. And I wonder if you could do like Agira versus Apocalypto analysis. Because Agira is all about the man. It's about the transformation that happens to the conquistador uh, in his experience, uh, you know, conquering, as opposed to Apocalypto, which is about like what happens to the, the conquered uh, or to the spirit of man, you know, when confronted with the concept of conquering. And... Um, yeah, that might be a good one. Let's put a pin in that. Agira is another one of those movies. Agira, the Wrath of God. Yeah. Um, Agira is another one of those movies where, like, it definitely has that transcendent aspect to it. Now, whether you like the movie or not, whether you think it succeeds or fails, like, those are separate questions. But it definitely has this thing where Herzog is doing something other than just trying to make a movie as good as he can. Uh, he's trying to go deeper uh, into you know, whatever art and humanity. Um, and yeah, it's, it's Klaus Kinski being really crazy. It's a crazy movie. Um, it's an insane movie. Uh, it's really, really, 
memorable. So yeah, that might be a good one someday. I just was reminded of it when you talked about how Apocalypto is like, yeah, how many movies do you see that depict that kind of a thing? And uh, yeah, it's really one of the only ones that comes to mind. Yeah, I think Agira is one of those movies that if I had seen it when I was like 16, it would be my favorite movie to this day. But like, it just so happens that like I saw it after I was already like <laughs> fossilized in my opinions. I saw Slacker, uh, you know, at that age. And so to me, Slacker is still like, will always be, you know, my second favorite movie of all time. Uh, even if like something like Mulholland Drive comes up and is just indisputable. Yeah. Uh, slacker is always going to be right there because it's just, it's so ingrained into me. And of course you can see its flaws if you watch it without that background. But to me, it's just, it's, it's perfect in everything, including its imperfections. And I could picture Member a movie Berries. like South Park did a very good job concretizing that exact phenomenon. Yeah. And I could picture Agira being like that. Um, and it has enough merit behind it to where like, you know, I can, you know, serious critics do say that it's one of the best movies ever made, but it's, it's also extremely weird. And I think it would make great brazen heads fodder. Barry Lyndon, on the other hand, is one of these things where I just feel like for as perfect as Barry Lyndon is, it's perfect in a way where like you could just do a college course about it. And like, there would be an objective right and wrong answer on the final exam you know, about like what's good and where the movie succeeds and how it does, like what it does so well. There's nothing ineffable about it. There's nothing like further than that. Yeah, there's no magic, um, which it sounds like I'm taking something away from it. I'm not. It's It really is truly great, but it doesn't have that magic. Yeah, there's a lot of things ineffable about me, unfortunately. hey that was my nickname in high school, Ineffable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, when it comes to having that special magical quality, are you ready to transition? Um, because Twin Peaks does have that. <laughs> yes, of course. it definitely does. That's for sure. <laughs> and I don't just mean that like magic happens in the story, but also just like the, uh, there's stuff about it where it's just like, well, what the hell? You know, the, the thing, the, that scene in the lobby... Uh, of the Great Northern, where all of the people are standing around in like Navy uniforms and, and bouncing rubber balls. Uh, that like, was last episode. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 last episode. I but I'm just talking about when uh, Leland's dancing in the timber room. No, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, for sure. But no, in the previous episode, that just that scene of the, them all standing there bouncing rubber balls, and you hear the sound of it before you understand what even, what's even happening. And you never learn why that's happening uh, in the first place. And uh, that's the kind of stuff where it's just like, you need to have those little, it's like putting the right amount of salt in your meal. It's like you need to have those types of things added in as well for something to really rise above uh, and become something uh, more. And that's why... Uh, the previous episode of Twin Peaks, episode 14 or 207, Lonely Souls, was so amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, so speaking of that, um, we're moving on to the next Tribe episode. Tribe with the Dead Girl. I wonder where they get the name for that. Yeah. Episode. It's like... Yeah. Wait, but now that I'm making a joke about it, maybe there's a double meaning in there. Yeah, maybe there is. And also... 
on that concept of having the right amount of salt uh, to make a perfect meal, uh, the log lady actually talks about food uh, here in the log lady intro. Uh, this is a longer log lady intro, but let me just read it off here, uh, as is our tradition. Uh, food is interesting. For instance, why do we need to eat? Why are we never satisfied with just the right amount of food to maintain good health and proper energy? We always seem to want more and more. When eating too much, the proper balance is disturbed and ill health follows. Of course, eating too little food throws the balance off in the opposite direction, and there is the ill health coming at us again. Balance is the key. Balance is the key to many things. Do we understand balance? The word balance has seven letters. Seven is difficult to balance, but not impossible if we are able to divide. There are, of course, the pros and cons of division. There's one of your on-the-nose log lady intros for you. I mean, if you had to sum up season three of Twin Peaks, which we'll get to later, you could probably just give basically exactly this log lady intro. The whole idea of the multiple Coopers and Duggies and everything is all is all kind of right there. And if there's one thing that my my good friend, the transcendental meditator who understands the above and the below, the White Lodge and the Black Lodge, uh, there's David Lynch talking to us about balance right there. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I guess Leland I'm is what's divided here. Yeah, uh, Leland's divided. Maddie is a duel of Laura, of course. Yeah, Emerald and Jade and the, and the soap opera. Mm-hmm. We even have concepts of uh, transness, which will be coming at us. Uh, in season two and more so in season three, or at least transvestitism, uh, which is another sort of like, I think, dualism that Lynch is interested in playing yeah. with. There's, which um, I thought was really funny when I first you know saw season two. But now mm-hmm. upon reflection, I, I realize that it's not funny, very serious. It's, it's, it to, is. to see a man dressed up in women's clothing, there's nothing funny about that. Yeah, there's an, there's an interesting thing about seeing David Duchovny from our modern perspective but i i will say they they pulled it off well in season three it's one of those things that season three had to do something with and i think they they did a good job with it which we'll which we'll get to later i guess another sort of uh division that we see here again we'll go through the plot points like we usually do but um uh ernie who is uh you know norma's mom's new beau uh is a split personality in a sense he's leading two lives uh, as we learn here and um yeah Gwen you know Lucy's sister that's that's another sort of uh you know dual or you know balancing act between those two yeah speaking uh, of somebody who needs diversity training yeah exactly that's right yeah she's offensive to hawk uh, at one point <laughs> but she's trying to be nice she says i can't imagine how you must feel about us white people that's <laughs> a very hollywood liberal uh, notion that lynch is giving voice to there I, I don't know how that landed in 1990 but now it lands awkward and yeah yeah like she needs diversity training yeah that was you know several cultures ago so Okay, well, um, I'll get into it here. So, yeah, we start off with, so, so you know, it's been a couple of weeks here. So let's remember that, yeah, the previous episode, as I said, with the, the bouncing rubber balls, this is a historic episode, maybe the best episode uh, in some measure, uh, definitely one of the best uh, of all time. And it ends uh, with um, 
the uh, the the terrible scene of Leland killing Maddie. Um, so we're at a very pivotal moment here uh, in in Twin Peaks uh, and season two's primary arc. You know, where the moments, the the stuff where the story is really getting uh, finalized before Lynch rides off into the sunset, and we wind up with the second half of season two. Uh, we're smack dab in the middle of that good stuff right here. So. We start off with Leland hitting golf balls in the living room uh, and acting like everything is totally normal. Um, and James and Donna stop by. And However normal they, it is to hit golf balls in the living room, I mean, it's yeah. a little bit odd. Yeah, There's he's, no he's, net. Yeah, he's hitting chip he's just shots. just hitting them into the chairs. He yeah. doesn't really trust himself. You know, the thing I noticed before this is the house in this show seems from the outside you know the establishing shot it seems isolated compared to the house in real life i don't know if you looked up pictures of the house in real life but there are our houses on either side that are very close yeah but for some reason the show it just seems like this isolated house on this you know smallish hill mm-hmm. but it just yeah so i don't know yeah like you could they, if they, you're they, really they must have gone out of their way to make it look that way yeah i mean if you were really thinking about like maddie's screams you know, in the last episode, like, I guess it's, it's realistic when you see the real street view that like neighbors would have heard that. Um, but it's not the kind of, that's not really something that's addressed in the show. Um, the houses are kind of like up on sort of hills, like, like the, the house level is like elevated from the street level. If I remember correctly, uh, somewhat on that road. It goes up like like five feet. That's pretty common. And there's kind of like bushes or like hedges that are kind of separating the lots. I remember there's a scene in, in Firewalk with me when Laura is a terrible scene where Laura has been molested the previous night and the next morning she doesn't know what happened and she sees her father leaving the house and that's when she first realizes that it's him. And she's sort of like hiding in a bush like at the edge of their property line. Um, so there's kind of like this separation between the houses, but I know what you mean. Like it's, they're closer together than you would think. I think I mentioned it before. There's, there's a great, if you want to watch a YouTube freak, there's a great Adam the Woo video. Adam the Woo is this famous YouTube nerd who he got kicked out of Disney for like trying to film a bunch of like stupid content at Disney. He's a, he's an annoying doofus who tries to just make a living by making like YouTube tourism videos. Um, but he did a great video where he went to the house um, the, the Palmer house from Twin Peaks and hung out with the owner, uh, the real owner who is actually in season three. Uh, and they talk a lot about her experience, like, you know, with the show being filmed inside of the house and, and working with Lynch and all that stuff. And it's, it's pretty cool. There seems to be a new style of, of YouTuber that just is annoying to people in public. Yeah, I guess it's not new. It's um, Tom Green or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's this generation's Tom Green, and they just go act annoying to people in public, and that's it. Yeah, and yeah. it's just it's just a totally lost on me. It just seems like the dumbest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. To be clear, this guy is not doing that. This this is a totally watchable video. It's his it's his most watchable video. If you're because if you're a Twin Peaks fan, it's interesting. This guy is more just like an annoying sort of nerd. Uh, but he's he's not bothering people per se, uh, maybe just bothering the viewer. No, he's not annoying on purpose. Right, exactly, exactly. For the okay, yeah. Um, you so just yeah, said annoying and content creator, and I just saw that anyway. Yeah, no, you're right though. That is a whole separate trend that's going on for sure. Um, yeah. So James and Donna stop by, um, you know, because right. to them the story is that Maddie is leaving town, um, and so Leland tells them, "Oh, you know, you missed her. She left already." 
you can write her a letter, blah, blah, blah. But then we see that uh, Maddie's body is actually hidden inside of Leland's golf bag. Yeah. And what uh, does, you know, I, and there's just weird stuff. Maybe um, not unlike the the uh, the balls being bounced by the sailors in, in the, the lobby of the, the Great Northern, but, you know, Sarah calls up Leland. Yeah. In a very distressed way, Sarah calls up Leland, and then he comes downstairs looking scary, like, what happened? Mm-hmm. It's never referenced again. It's just, you know, stuff like that, that if you're not paying attention, it, you might just totally forget about it. Right. You, It could be there just as a plain old TV writer's trick to inject some extra suspense into the scene. Like, oh, what's going on here? Does Sarah know something? Is Leland going to do something? Um but because it's unresolved, because there's really nothing to it, it is kind of left hanging in this sort of mysterious way that I think works really well as you, kind of, okay, yeah. Okay, you got to uh, create a one-act play of the dialogue between Sarah and Leland when, when Leland went upstairs. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Like fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, that's a great creative writing exercise for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, next scene is... Uh, Jerry visiting his brother Ben, who is in jail. Remember, Ben has been arrested. Um, he was about to make the deal with Mr. Tojimura, and then the cops came in and arrested him, mainly because, um, uh, mainly because um, Audrey has been talking about how you know Ben was involved in One Eye Jacks and blah blah blah. So um, yeah, Ben's in jail and he's he's in trouble. Like they have a pretty good, at least circumstantial reason to believe um that uh that that he might have been involved in laura's death there's also the line from laura's secret diary that says someday i'm going to tell the world about ben horn um so yeah again one of these things that just you know its only purpose is to just be sort of you know stuff just stuff in the episode it's not part of the plot but uh to try to lift ben's spirits uh jerry and ben reminisce about when they were little boys in their bunk beds and a girl came in and danced for them, uh, waving a flashlight around. And we get this like very fifties ish flashback black back. It looks like it could be out of uh, you know, back to the future or something <laughs> where uh, little Ben and little Jerry are watching this girl dance around. Yeah. Who is this girl? And, and what are the circumstances? Like, is she a babysitter? Yeah. We, we don't really know. I guess that's, that's probably a good guess. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. And Jerry says that line like, Oh, wh- what's happened to us? Right. But it's, it's kind of a joke because they're kind of in the same position. Right. <laughs> just like, uh, I, I mean, part of the reason why Ben's in that position is he, uh, he likes women. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're been, both been kind of sleazy and have wound up basically sitting on their beds <laughs> without any access to anything, just like they like were you when they were kids. You guys didn't go anywhere. That's just yeah. kind of a funny wink. Yep. Um, the scene with the, the the portrayal of the babysitter dancing around with the flashlight is done in a very specific kind of style. It's like it's like a you know flashback, whatever you would call that uh, type of deal, like a Family Guy joke where it like cuts away to this totally different thing, and it it kind of goes on for a while. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. It's like okay, we get it, wrap it up. But yeah, it's just part of the flavor of the episode. Um. Okay, the next next thing is we meet Lucy's sister Gwen, who's here with her baby, uh, which makes for some comic relief. 
she me talk god how you must hate us white people um not much to say there let me ask you this when you remember scenes um is it sometimes that the mere image of how the scene is actually you know portrayed you mean like left right yeah like is it flipped left right because that's that happens to me and this definitely happened to me in this scene when when gwen me talk i could have sworn it was the other way around where gwen was on the right side but in fact she's on the left side hmm i didn't think about that i'm sure that's happened that happens every once in a while to me and it it happened here in a very striking way so i don't know that's just a phenomenon that came up hmm interesting you never know what that stuff nowadays depending on how you're watching the episode i think it means i'm gay (laughs) it could have been flipped you know the (laughs) This, this is a topic for a whole separate episode, but someday someone is going to have to deal with the whole, we're going to have to have some sort of, you know, big cultural reckoning with the fact that like these, this content that's on streaming platforms, it can change from underneath us. Um, you know, they can, they can flip the scene if they want to. How would you know? You know, it's not your physical media. It could be different between two different viewings of the same title. Um you know, yeah, the, but but you would tell that the people look different if it's a mirror image. I mean, yeah. most people look different, you know, the, the, in the mirror. Well, I don't know. I think if you were Unless just you're like, Ramsey's face and Luxor, then you don't look different. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, Sorry. Ramsey, Ram, yeah, Ramsey's, and then John Bonet Ramsey. There's like predictive programming there also because like I've been getting really into that true crime. I'm just trying to come up with like the craziest like connection. Dude, I were you thinking of JonBenet Ramsey? <laughs> uh, yeah, when you said when right now the context that I'm in right now, if you just say the proper noun Ramseys to me right now, just given the stuff I've been watching lately, I'm going to be thinking of the Ramsey family. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But you know, if you talk to me when we were in Egypt, well, that it was been just true. the anniversary of her death, right? She died yeah. around Christmas. Yeah, exactly. She, yep. Was killed on Christmas. I've mentioned it before once or twice, but holy shit, is that a fascinating rabbit hole? There's not like an interesting conspiracy take. It's not like anything about society or anything. It's just a very interesting true crime case where it just no one can really be really sure whatever the hell actually happened. It's just so it's such a weird case. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a ransom note. Uh, and the ransom note is insane. Just nothing makes sense if you read the ransom note. It just makes the whole thing so confusing. If there's any true crime heads out there, I'd love to hear your uh, John Bonet takes. The Brazen Heads Podcast at gmail.com. Anyway. So, when does Cooper uh, trample on Ben's constitutional rights? That's coming. <laughs> um, okay, the next thing that we have. I mean, if there's ever a holdout for still liking Cooper, that's gone at this point, right? Um, Wait, the next thing that I have, I don't know what you're referring to. The next thing I have is Cooper and Truman seeing Leland dancing in the lobby of the Great Northern Hotel. Mm -hmm. So it's just call me Fred. Right. He's dancing around. He's Fred Astaire. Yep. And then they decide, okay, we better tell him we've arrested Ben Horn. Um, and then like, you know, Leland kind of slinks off and you can see again, there's that Bob aspect there. He's kind of like laughing sadly, but evilly at the same time to himself. And, uh, and Coop comes up on him when, when Leland doesn't really know. It's like you're playing a practical joke on somebody you don't want to to reveal that you're laughing. (laughs) Right. He's kind of hiding it a little (laughs) bit, but, but Coop comes back around the corner and, and sees him and, 
And, uh, you know, outwardly, you know, the normal Leland is saying like, oh, there must be some mistake. Like, it's not Ben. I know him. I thought it was Jacques Renault, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course, you know, Leland is already legally, you know, culpable for the murder of Jacques Renault. Um, you know, we've already met with the judge and everything like that. So, you know, this is, this is, um, getting complicated, right? Everybody knows in some sense, you know, maybe they don't know, but everyone thinks that, that Leland killed Jacques Renault out of revenge for the death of Laura. And now he's being told that that wasn't the murderer anyway. Um, so yeah, anyway. Okay. Um, then the scene after that is Ben getting questioned and getting his blood drawn. Uh, and yeah, has, this is when Cooper laughs at his constitutional rights. What is that? It's just crazy to me. These this part of the show doesn't stand out to you that Jerry's defending Ben's constitutional rights and Cooper is laughing at him. He's saying we don't care about that. What specific? I don't remember. Maybe I just am not remember. What specifically are you referring to? What do they do that Cooper uh, doesn't? I forget allow? specifically what they said. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll do this. Sorry episode again next week <laughs> okay. there's just a lot of this scene that's very distasteful to me that really makes me not like the so-called good guys yeah the cops are a- like, like, acting obviously like tough Cooper's guy cops. FBI. i don't like him anyways and he's laughing at so jerry's trying to defend ben's constitutional rights and cooper comes over the top with him of oh you you know you got like last year class at gonzaga and took three times the pass the bar it's like so mm-hmm. oh so it doesn't matter it, the constitutional rights don't matter if you didn't go to Yale. <laughs> That's true. Like, well, what is he trying to say? It's so infuriating. And then Dr. Hayward, who I see as like this patriarchal, large character, he just seems so small and petty when he pricks Ben's hand to get the blood for the sample. It just seems like that's something a 17-year-old would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know. Truman's okay. fine. He doesn't do anything wrong in this scene, but that those two things it just bothers the hell out of me. Okay, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. This is Diz standing up for all of your constitutional rights. Diz <laughs> is a cab. He's he's criticizing these authority figures who don't have any respect. A cab. <laughs> all cops are bastards. Come on, oh. man. Sorry, I'm not not on Reddit like some people. That's not from Reddit, that's just from society. Does that not bother you when he just ridicules Jerry when Jerry has a a legitimate point? Yeah, this is an interesting thing about Twin Peaks. In in any other show, that definitely would bother me, and I definitely agree with you. There's just something about Twin Peaks where it's weird. It's like, in order to, to get into Twin Peaks, there's, like, to some extent, you're being asked to buy into this soap opera like a self-aware winkingly soap opera-ish mentality where like you have to live in a world where like there really is a double R diner where people want to listen to like smoky jazz tunes on the jukebox. Uh, and in that exact same sense, like this really is a world where like truly an FBI agent is a good guy and not some sort of like figure of deep state evil. And it's, it's just the anachronistic world that Twin Peaks, that's just part of the thing of Twin Peaks. But I mean, I get it in a, in a normal circumstance, of course, like this would be offensive. Um, so I guess I'm just kind of like suspending my, not suspending my disbelief, but just like going with the fact that like, oh, this is a world where. Yeah, an FBI agent is a good guy, which is almost never true. Then I have to pretend like I like Cooper the rest of the episode, which is very difficult. <laughs> uh, you know? I mean, to me, you know, that's the whole thing. Like, 
on a different level, if you forget about the anachronism, on a different level, it's like, you know, the point of Cooper is not to be law enforcement anyway. The point of Cooper is that he's this spiritual journeyer. Um, you know, he, he's moving through different planes and trying to, again, bring balance uh, in some way. And, um, and he is off on the wrong foot here. Like, this is wrong. Uh, the, the ben is, is, is uh, barking up the wrong tree, but, but he'll get there soon. He's just not there yet. Okay, well, that was my opinion about this scene. What yeah. are your thoughts? Well, the only other thing that's notable about it is that it has, you know, the comedy line. Which, you know, as your attorney, as your attorney, your friend, and your brother, I strongly suggest you get a better lawyer. That's a classic, classic uh, Jerry Horn line right there. Hmm. Yeah. I do like Jerry. Mm-hmm. Jerry's great. It's great in Commando I also. I like that guy. Yep. Um, okay, next thing we have is uh, Bobby playing back the tape that he has of the old Ben Horn, Leo Johnson uh, conversation uh, about burning down the mills. So this is Bobby has evidence that Ben paid Leo to to burn the mill. Um, so Bobby's thinking like, man, you know, we're screwed here. We still have to take care of this guy, Leo. The insurance money didn't come through. It's tough making ends meet. I'm trying to be Shelley's hero here. Um, I can blackmail this millionaire Ben Horn uh, and get what I want. So that's setting up some plot stuff uh, for later. Um, speaking of setting up plot stuff, uh, Norma's mom arrives in town and she has this new guy, Ernie, with her, her husband. Uh, Norma and her mom have a interestingly chilly relationship, I guess I would say, where Norma's mom is kind of the caricature of a critical yeah, right critical, right? critical parental, maternal figure maternal parental parental figure uh but norma does a good job of kind of just holding her own and 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 uh and keeping her mom at arm's length um not more more about that just yet except for that also um in a minute we kind of cut away and cut back in a minute th- that scene will continue but um first before that um the one-armed man, Philip Gerard, awakes. They've been keeping a close eye on him ever since having him at the police station um, in the previous episode. And uh, he escapes uh, the room uh, that he was being held in at the Great Northern um, with the classic old uh, conk the guard on the head technique and, and run out the window. He even says sorry after he conks the guard on the head. So that's <laughs> that's nice of him. <laughs> Yeah, you know if you tried to do that in real life, it would never work. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, Hank returns to the double R after being gone for two days. Is the last thing that we saw from Hank was when he got beat up by Josie's, uh, you know, handler? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, so, I don't by know. Jonathan. Yeah, I don't know exactly what to say about Hank just yet. But he got beat up and then he had to go do something, take care of something. I guess we don't really know what. Do we know what? I don't think so. Uh, no? I don't think so, yeah. Um, but that's related to the next scene, um, which is when Pete tells Harry that Josie is gone. Um, she sold the mill to Ben Horn. She left town. She just left a note. Uh, but in her note, uh, and from Truman and 
Pete talking to each other, they realize that this guy, the cousin or the handler or whatever, Jonathan slash Mr. Lee, as she introduced him to, <laughs> to Truman, like something's weird there. Like, uh, why is she, who is this guy? Why was she cagey about it? Why is she gone so suddenly? Um, and then before they can, you know, talk it all out, Coop comes in and says like, hey, you know, the one-armed man just ran off. Uh, we've got to go. Um, so yeah, they go off to take care of that. Uh, and then also finally for a little levity, uh, Andy sees Lucy's sister with the baby, uh, and faints because, you know, he knows that Lucy is pregnant and, and he's, he's confused and airheaded. Um, okay. Yeah. How are we doing so far? We're laying on a lot of plot stuff here, but I think we're, we haven't yeah, missed anything um, yet. There's really not too much to analyze so yeah. far. I mean, aside from the constitutional rights thing. We get to a good, we're going to get to a good uh, moment in just a minute here, but a couple more little plot things that are happening. Um, Pete goes to the jail uh, to talk to Ben through the bars. And he has a tape that Catherine has left. Um, so Catherine's really got Ben finally right where she wants him. She says on the tape that she will agree to testify that Ben and Catherine were together. Um, the night of Laura's death, which is true. I mean, Ben really didn't kill Laura. Ben really was with Catherine that night, but you know, the, the he needs an alibi, uh, and Catherine is the one who can give it to him. Um, and so she'll do that uh, if he signs the mill over to her and finally gives her what she wants. Um, so that's a good one. This is a good moment for Pete to just sort of laugh in Ben Horton's face. Um, okay, now we have the awesome scene where Leland is just going nuts. And driving wildly on these like twisty uh, country roads, um, just like veering across all lanes of traffic, singing uh, with his golf clubs in the back uh, of the car and uh, almost almost gets into a head on collision with Cooper and Truman. Um, So, yeah, they pull him over and he's being super weird. It's a good suspenseful scene where like, who knows what's going to happen. Now we know this guy is a murderer, you know, and now the cops have just pulled him over. Um, but he's acting completely carefree. And he says (laughs) in one of the great, like made up, (laughs) like trying to like make up, like you're innocently remembering a fact. He says, Oh, you know what? I just remembered that uh, Ben Horn said something once about a dairy. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay. You mean diary? He's like, yeah, you know, it might have been. He might have said diary. Great Ray Wise acting again here. It's so good. Like dairy. Like you would get that confused in your memory. Like you heard dairy. I love it. So anyway, um, Truman has to go back to his cop car to take a call over the radio it's it's Cooper and and Leland alone, and Leland is being weird and saying like, "Oh, I just got a new set of clubs. Uh, can I show them to you? Uh, they're right here in the in the back of my car, uh, you know, whatever." And like, we already know Maddie's body is in that golf bag. Like, this is you know crazy, and so you know you're led to think like, "Oh man, Leland is gonna, you know, murder Cooper with a golf club or something like that." But then before anything can happen. Um, they get called away, and and uh, the call on the radio causes Cooper and Harry to Is drive off. Is that what you're thinking? That Leland's going to murder Cooper? Well, I mean, what do you think? You think he's going to show him the body? Could be that. I think he's just so in love with himself for 
killing this girl and nobody suspects him and he has the cops here. It's just like part of the fun and enticement of I'm even going to invite, you know, the FBI guy back to the trunk and talk about golfing with him. Yeah, not even do anything. Just have the audacity to just show him my golf club. Yeah, maybe. It's like a Bond villain explaining everything that he does. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I thought that was a good that was a good scene though. It's a it's a good example of just kind of like how to have a new sort of tension in the show now that you know who the murderer is. It's like he's who knows what Leland's going to do now that you're kind of let in on the secret. Well, yeah, I'm I'm just to me the new tension is well now he's two guys. Yeah. Definitely. And Mike is two guys, and there's this Black Lodge, and what's going on? And it goes so much deeper than just this. Anyway, well, we don't know about the Black Lodge yet, really. Yeah, true. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But we're, we're getting there. We're getting there, and we kind of know. I mean, we've seen the giant. You know, we've heard the Log Lady. You know, we obviously know Cooper's dream. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, Hawk, Hawk told him there's things in the woods that you can't explain. Right, the owls are not what they seem. Like, yeah, there's definitely a lot going on. But yeah, um. Okay, the next thing in my notes literally says, Andy, Lucy, Gwen scene, who cares? <laughs> so, I guess... Oh, Gwen, Gwen's just being annoying. Okay, I guess I don't... I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, it's just like a silly soap opera kind of scene with, like, the annoying sister coming to town and get getting her nose in business that, you know, that's not her business. And, mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, not much going on there, I agree. Okay, I think it's like... That's the linchpin of the entire series, that one scene. What do you <laughs> right, you have to decode it. I think uh, in that scene, Andy is telling Lucy that like he got his sperm retested and he can't have babies, so right. it's possible that he's the father. Um, all right, next is to try to, again, like we said, you know, Cooper's barking up the wrong tree with Ben Horn, but here we're kind of going to kind of settle it. They found Philip Gerard, the one-armed man. They put him in the same room with Ben Horn, um, and they don't let him have his medicine. So they're letting like the Bob-Mike dynamic start to emerge in Philip Gerard, the one-armed man. And he says, Bob is not here. And uh, so again, going back to that balance thing, I think here's a really good link up back to the Log Lady intro. Right. Cooper and Truman at this point represent this sort of two sided approach to detective work or police work. Right. Truman is the very practical sheriff on the street of a small town. He just needs to kind of get the job done of upholding law and order. Um, And Cooper, again, is this sort of spiritual warrior uh, who's really has a different technique, has a Tibetan technique or whatever you want to call it for for trying to solve this crime. So to Cooper, it's you got to let Ben Horn go. That's it. It's over. And that's sort of like Harry's breaking point. And it's a good confrontation between the two of them where Harry just says like, you know, I've put up with a lot here. Uh, there's no more sort of mumbo jumbo allowed. We're going to charge Ben Horn. And, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's not Coop's place to tell him what he can and can't do in his town. So he's like, you know, you're right, Harry. I'm getting a little bit too, uh, you know, full of myself here. It's your town. You can you can arrest arrest him if you want to. Um, but he but but Cooper does not think that Ben Horn did it. So for what it's worth, I liked that scene. Yeah, yeah, it's a good scene. 
Um, it's like the first time that that Truman has an upper hand on Cooper. Right. Well, you Cooper's remember from like the very beginning about everything. Yeah. Right. Like exactly. From reading people to knowing things beforehand. And right. He's just kind of like dumber and less experienced and everything all around. Uh, and Cooper, like ever since the beginning of the show, has been this sort of like almost like clairvoyant. You know, he just understands everything. How long have you been in love with Josie and like all that stuff? And if you remember, like the very first scene of Cooper arriving uh, and meeting Truman, where he, where he, they're like talking about the fundamentals of finding Laura's body, and uh, you know Truman's like, you know, you can understand we're all upset, and and Cooper's like, sure, a nice small town like this. Let me stop you right here in the hallway and explain a few things, blah blah blah. And you know he does the whole thing like in his very tactful, like peaceful Cooperish way. Still, he kind of right off the bat just asserts his upper hand in this whole situation. You know, when the bureau gets called in, the bureau is in charge. Sometimes local law enforcement doesn't like that. You know, blah blah oh, blah. I'm sure they have a script that they read. Yeah, right. Or Cooper at it, least it does. Sounds, it almost sounds like Cooper's reading. Right. At, at least for him, he has a very certain way that he goes about it. And it's finally now, after 15 episodes, uh, gotten to the point where Harry has to really kind of, yeah, get some get some hand back in this relationship. So I thought that was a good scene. Um, okay, next is Donna. Uh, dude, uh, can, can, we, uh, can we pause it here and, and continue it uh, next season has? Okay, well, we got, we got, I got two more things in my notes. I think we can do it. This is going to be okay, super. Two more things. Yeah, okay. super, super quick. We got Norma and her mom. <laughs> we got Norma and her mom going out to dinner uh, with Hank and Ernie, and it turns out that this guy Ernie knows Hank from back in jail. They were actually in jail together. Like, what? What are the odds of that? I don't know. Who cares? Again, that's a big who cares. Although it is kind of funny. To like for Hank to be like being all, uh, you know, putting this guy in an awkward position. Um, and then we have Audrey meeting back up with Coop, right? Um, she says that, you know, it's weird. She helped get her dad arrested. I want you to know. She almost, she almost tells Cooper, I wanted you to know that I'm a virgin. Uh, which is very weird. And then right when she's yeah, about she to didn't say have that. she sex with anybody at One Eye Jacks. Right, right. And right when she says that, it cuts to a shot of Cooper's cherry pie uh, on the table of his of his room. So the imagery going on there <laughs> big time. Um, I but did anyway. not catch that cherry pie reference. Yeah. Which is interesting because cherry pie is my favorite song by Warren. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, Warren right I think there. I would have picked up on that, but no. And so then the phone rings, and whatever it is, Cooper tells Audrey, go back to your room and lock the door. So that's kind of our cliffhanger. And then, well, it's not a cliffhanger, but it's, you know, that that's kind of like we're wrapping up the episode. And we, finally, what we get is Maddie's body is found. Wrapped in plastic, looks just like Laura's, basically. So, yeah, we're kind of come full circle, and we have a new body on our hands. Yeah. So, yeah, we did it. Um, we're getting there. We're now we know who the killer is, and we also have another dead body with Ben Horn basically being in custody. By the way, right? So now Truman knows he's wrong, um, and we'll have to take it from there next time. See, this is really why I think where the show gets good because now we're yeah now we are gonna 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 get into Black Lodge, you know, kind of stuff. right. Absolutely. Yep. All of the lore is gonna start pouring forth. Uh, starting now because yeah we're gonna we're gonna solve the case and yet open up all these new realms 
So yeah, stay with us. Uh, keep up with us. Let us know what you think. The Brazenheads Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your Barry Linden takes. All right, man. Good talking with you. It's time for bed. All right. Uh, I will. Yeah, I will talk to you tomorrow, and uh, we'll talk to everybody uh, on the next episode. All right. Later.